Good afternoon, everyone. In the modern age, Americans and many others around the world are enjoying unprecedented wealth. Luxuries previous generations could not even dream of are taken for granted by today's generation. It was less than 100 years ago that automobiles became commonplace in the United States. Before that, people walked or rode horses or rode horse-drawn carriages. Sometimes they took trains, but even trains at that time had not been around very long. The first radio station began broadcasting in 1920. Commercial television became popular in the United States in the 1950s, and the technology has improved dramatically since that time, and radios and high-definition television sets are less expensive than ever before, making them afford affordable to even the poorest of families, at least in the United States. Today, nearly every household in the United States has at least one radio and one television. Refrigerators, freezers, air conditioners were unknown to most of our grandparents or great-grandparents. They're conveniences that have become widely available only in the past century. In the early 1800s, most people, about three out of four in the United States, were employed in agriculture, mostly subsistence and local market farming. In 1920, more than 25% of the U.S. population was employed in farming. Today, it's less than 2%. And technological improvements have enabled more food to be produced with less human labor than ever before. Only about 40% of the land in the United States is used for agricultural production, and that includes livestock grazing and forest production. Even with its small farm labor workforce, the United States produces about half the world's corn, 10% of its wheat, and about 20% of its beef, pork, and lamb. It also produces more lumber than any other country and more petroleum. Until recent government imposed cutbacks on production. And, of course, there are many other fa facets to the economy as well. In this country, we have a very diverse economy. In proportion to their income, Americans spend less than or less on food than any other nation on the earth. Due to technological advances, it takes less money today in real terms to buy many common items than it did 50 years ago. I'm talking about real money, not necessarily in terms of uh, the denomination of, of the currency, but uh, actual purchasing power. A recent article in the Washington Times compares the time it took to earn money based on an average wage to buy various items today as opposed to 1970, 50 years ago. Now, this comparison was with 2020 prices, and with the recent inflation, these figures would be somewhat different now, but nevertheless, the overall picture is still relevant to our time now. According to the article, it takes about a quarter of the time today, as opposed to 1970, to earn enough money to buy a dozen eggs. 
takes about a third of the time to buy a half gallon of milk, 57% to buy a pound of rice, a little over half to buy a man's undershirt, 85% for a gallon of gasoline, and less than a fourth to purchase a transatlantic trans airline ticket. Using a low-cost phone service plan, making long distance of making a long-distance phone call can cost only a tiny fraction of what, what it would have cost 50 years ago. The Internet barely existed 50 years ago. On the Internet today, you can access books, publications, and other media virtually free of charge that would have been inaccessible to most people 50 years ago, perhaps inaccessible to just about anybody. Of course, in most cases, you have to pay for access to the Internet, so there is some cost, but computerization and the Internet have made many things less costly and more widely and easily available. The computer in a cell phone is more powerful than computers that would have filled a room a generation ago. Cars are more efficient, and a gallon of gas cheaper in real terms will take you on average much farther than a generation ago. For several years in the last decade, the nation was mired in a recession and slow economic growth, and many people were having difficulty finding work. But now the Washington Times article states, quote, the real wealth and well-being of the vast majority of Americans has risen faster for the past three years than almost any time in history. Now remember, this article is from 2020, not today. The article also states, quote, in the United States, there are more jobs than workers. Wages for all groups are rising faster than prices. What is particularly remarkable and a very good sign is that wages for the lowest income and least skilled are rising faster than other groups, end quote. Again, this was in 2020. The living standard in material terms for the average person in the United States and in much of the rest of the world is much higher than at any time in history. At the same time, many of the world's people are still trapped in impoverished conditions, but even many poor areas of the world are becoming less poor. So the world, and especially the United States and other developed countries, are enjoying prosperity on a scale unlike any in history. But does this kind of prosperity translate into a better and more secure life in the long term? How should we handle or react to material riches made available to us? There are many advantages, of course, to being able to enjoy wealth and abundance. But one thing about prosperity is that all too often it can result in people forgetting about God. And the temptation is to, instead of trusting in God, it's all too easy to trust in one's wealth and be consumed with material pursuits. In today's sermon, I want to discuss some pitfalls of prosperity we need to be mindful of. The title of the sermon is, In Prosperity, Beware. In Proverbs 30 and verse 7, Proverbs 30 and verse 7, we read two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now notice among the statements here is a request not to have riches, lest I be full and deny you, that is, deny God, and say, Who is the Lord? The Bible says a lot about riches and some of the problems that, that go with or can go with being wealthy or rich. Not that they necessarily have to, but Jesus spoke about this on several occasions. One of them being recorded here in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Matthew 19 and verse 16, it uh, tells us that one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You should. Witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore what, therefore, what shall we have? The point of this is that being a Christian often requires sacrifice. In fact, inevitably it requires sacrifice. And that means being willing to give and when necessary to give up everything to serve God. Now that does not mean necessarily that you can't be prosperous and also be a real Christian, but it's not necessarily easy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, and others we read about in the Bible were rich and yet they were faithful to God. But they put God ahead of riches and wealth, not typical of people who are wealthy. There are only a few countries on earth that have a higher standard of living than the United States. And all of them are small countries with limited area and small populations. As we in this country have been, become more prosperous in today's world, we have become less virtuous as a people. Interest in religion, especially Christianity, is declining. 
precipitously in the United States. I'm going to read from an article, some uh, excerpts from, from an article that appeared recently in the Washington Times, and the title of the article is Losing Our Religion, America Becoming Pagan as Christianity Seeds to Culture. And here are some of the things that the article says, quote, never before in American history has religion, and in the U.S. that inherently means Christianity, been so tested. Cultural distractions around abound and church attendance is dropping, and faith leaders mired in scandal are struggling to figure out how to connect with the next generations of potential churchgoers. People of faith are still a majority with more than 75% of the country ascribing to some religion. All combined, Christianity counts for nearly 63% of the population. And I might interject here that that's a precipitous drop from a generation or two ago. Going on, the article says, yet all the growth is on the other side of the spectrum, the so-called nuns or do not have a religious affiliation. That includes atheists and agnostics, but the real stunning rise within the nuns has been those who don't so much actively question or reject God as much as they don't see a reason to bother with religion. Call them the apathetics. The apathetics don't attend services. They don't ascribe to any one creed and often don't even have much familiarity with the faith world. They account for a bigger share of the population than the agnostics and atheists combined, and their numbers are growing by millions each year. For the first time ever this year, the nuns are the largest demographic in the U.S., with 23.1% of the population overtaking the Catholics and the evangelicals. Mr. Ryan Burge, a political scientist at an Illinois university, calculates, and among those ages 18 to 22, the vanguard of Generation Z, and I don't know where they get these uh, alphabet letters for generations, but anyway, I guess we're into Generation Z now, whatever that is. Anyway, it goes on to say more than 40% belong to the nuns. So in the, the younger generation, according to the this, this statistics compiled by this individual, more than 40% belong to the unaffiliated in terms of religion. And these numbers are based on the general social survey of massive growth of sociological data. The increasingly, I'm continuing to quote here, the increasingly chaotic religious landscape is causing friction, particularly where the beliefs of the faithful clash with the culture. In Hollywood, Christianity is portrayed somewhere between a comedy and a disease, though some other faiths fare better. In the nation's courtroom, centuries of doctrinal Christian belief which underpinned the nation's laws are being challenged by a smaller but politically powerful LGBTQ community. The Public Religion Research Institute said the nuns in the U.S. are growing at a stunning rate, 
In 2010, they accounted for 18%. By, tw by 2012, they were 20% and have grown at 1% each year since. As of 2018, 26% of Americans had no affiliation. There are a host of theories about what has happened to faith in the U.S. and to Christianity in particular. One is that the U.S. is following the path trod by Europe with economic prosperity correlating with less religion. Notice what it says. Why the decline in interest in religion? It correlates with economic prosperity. Going on with this article, it says in 1976, mainline Protestants made up 30% of the country. Now they're 10%. A Mr. McConnell at Lifeway Research says church leaders say that even in the last decade, they've seen a startling drop in engagement. People are spending less time reading the Bible on their own or even praying. Kids sports and just the myriad of activities that schools are offering for kids and media choices and things like that, that's a lot of co competition for a church and, and just vying for people's time and attention. It begins to start a spiral of less time, less relationships, less knowledge, he said. And so that's the end of what I will quote from that article. So interest in religion, any kind of religion, is declining in this nation, and especially interest in anything that is described as Christianity or calls itself Christianity. And what is happening in our nation and other professedly Christian nations in the Western world, however, should not surprise anyone familiar with the Bible. God, through Moses, prophesied and warned us of what would become of us as a people in the latter days. As we became rich, I'm talking about specifically the people of Israel. And as you know, we believe that the core population of the United States and Britain and some other countries are, in fact, descended from the ancient Israelites. We are the Israelites of today. Not everyone, of course, in the United States is a literal physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but many are. And here's what we read in Deuteronomy 31, verse 20. When I brought them into the land, this is God speaking to Moses, when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. Notice what he said. When they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land which I swore to give them. God knew the, the nature of the people, the inclination of their hearts and how they were likely to behave under certain conditions. In verse 29, going on of Deuteronomy 31, 
Moses said to the people of Israel, For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. The latter days, the days we're living in today. Evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. And then in chapter 32, we read the song that he wrote and we pick it up in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 13. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 13 where it's speaking of Israel and how God made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. But Jeshurun, or as it is in Hebrew, Yeshurun, or Yeshurun, I believe would be a better pronunciation, which comes from the root word Yashar, which means upright. The word Jeshurun, or Yeshurun, as it is in Hebrew, is a symbolic name for Israel. And it says, as they were enjoying these blessings, the people of Israel grew fat and kicked. Or the word could be, the word translated kicked here could be translated despised. They grew fat and they despised. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. And then that chapter goes on to list other sins and the punishment God will send as a result. It's been recently reported that the United Methodist Church, the nation's third largest religious denomination, is preparing to split over same-sex marriage and ordination of homosexuals. The majority of Methodist churches in the United States favor endorsing homosexual clergy and same-sex marriage. However, many of the denomination's churches, especially in the southern part of the country and the majority of Methodists internationally, are not in favor of having homosexual ministers and participating in same-sex marriage, thus the split. And this is just an indication of what is happening and has happened in many other church denominations in this country and other countries, especially in Western, in prosperous Western nations. And I say especially in prosperous Western nations. It's become rather common to see LGBTQ flags flying on church flagpoles in many places in the country. God warned through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 3 and verse 9, or beginning in verse 9, the look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. 
Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Now notice what God says. He says, in effect, if you follow the path of righteousness, things are going to turn out okay in the long run. But if you follow the opposite path, then you will be rewarded according to your works. goes on to say, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. End quote. Now, from God's standpoint, it's not the role of ministers or churches claiming to be Christian. It's not the correct or proper role of those churches or ministers to foster, facilitate, and participate in promoting and encouraging sin. To do so invites God's judgment. Here's an interesting comment from an editorial writer for the Washington Times in response to the news about the Methodist church split. She says, quote, her name, I believe, is Carol Chumley, by the way. She says, quote, there's actually a larger matter to mull here, and it's one that concerns the entire Christian community, the whole grouping of declared followers of Jesus Christ, and it's one that goes like this. The Bible doesn't lie. Ministers might, pastors can, churches as bodies and staffed entities certainly could and would if pragmatics and politics trumped enough traditional teachings, but the Bible as a book, its words are infallible and should be the priority go-to for individuals, even those individuals who think their church leaders do just fine telling them the word of God. The Bible in the end will light the right way, end quote, which is not normally the kind of thing you would expect to find in a, in a secular newspaper, but that's what she said, we might ask then, what does the Bible itself say about listening to unfaithful churches or unfaithful ministers? In Jeremiah 3, or 23, Jeremiah 23, verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me. Now remember the word we read earlier in Deuteronomy 32 where Israel despised. Here it tells us who is being despised. It's God. But the Lord has said you shall have peace. And to this is what, this, this is what the prophets are telling the people. The Lord has said, you shall have peace. Notice they're saying that God says this, that God is saying, you shall have peace. Everything's okay. You don't need to worry about anything. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. This is what he says the prophets are telling them, the prophets that he says do not listen to. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind, 
it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. So this again is a prophecy for the latter days. Goes on to say, I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned to them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. In other words, had the prophets actually spoken faithfully the word of God, the consequences, the results would have been different. Sodom is used several times in the Bible as an example of God's judgment on wickedness. What were the circumstances of Sodom's sinful state? One circumstance was their wealth, the abundance of their material goods, and it led to pride and a disdainful, arrogant, lawless spirit. God prophesies of the peoples descended from Israel today. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel 16, verse 48, As I live, says the Lord, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. In other words, they were wealthy as well as being prideful. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. God warns of turning from him in the pursuit of wealth or when one has acquired wealth. And remember, while you as an individual may not consider yourself wealthy, most of us in this country are wealthy by historical standards. We are in some ways wealthier than the wealthiest of people in past ages. We are wealthy just by virtue of living in this country and partaking of its largesse. So these warnings apply to every one of us, whether we consider ourselves wealthy or not. Now, of course, we're not as wealthy as many people, but there's always, no matter how rich you are, there's probably somebody who's going to be richer. So Jesus said, quoting from Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 16, Luke 12, verse 16, he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain man, a certain rich man, yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, so you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat, or nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. But notice he said, do not worry. He didn't say don't give any thought to it, but he said don't, don't be overly anxious about it. He said, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nation of the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. We have need of these things, but we're not to be anxious. We're not to make that our primary pursuit in life. He said, seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, get your priorities straight. Make your first priority in life seeking God and his kingdom. In Luke 16 and verse 19, we read a parable that Jesus uttered. Beginning with verse 19 of Luke 16, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, or the grave, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from their past to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if, you, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The rich man's problem was not that he was rich. Being rich of itself doesn't make you good or bad. His problem was that he trusted in riches, first of all, and secondly, he refused to hear God. He refused to hear God. 
over in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we need read another warning from God concerning the times that we live in. He says in verse 47, Deuteronomy 28, this is a prophecy of the latter days, and it says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, you did not serve God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So in times of prosperity, it would be wise for us not to forget God. In ancient times around the 10th century BC, a man named David became king of Israel and he reigned for 40 years and he was succeeded by his son Solomon who also reigned for 40 years. And during the era of David and Solomon, the nation of Israel became the world's wealthiest and most powerful nation. But at the height of its power and wealth, and it was extremely wealthy, Solomon introduced apostate religion and built sanctuaries for various pagan gods in the environs of Jerusalem. And because of his disobedience, rebellion, God took most of the kingdom at that time out of the hands of the house of David. Some were left, the children of Judah and Benjamin, and most of the Levites remained for the house of David to rule, but 10 tribes left the nation and separated from them. And that nation from that time was called Israel. And Israel continued to be a prosperous nation, not as wealthy or as powerful as during the time of Solomon and David, but nevertheless, following that era until about the middle of the 8th century BC, Israel was a relatively prosperous nation and a regional power. And that was the case until the Assyrians, about the middle of the 8th century BC, began a series of invasions which destroyed the Israelite infrastructure. And, and with their invasions, they took many of the people captive and carried them off to other places. And eventually, virtually the entire nation was carried into captivity. During that time of their prosperity, the nation continued to follow a syncretistic apostate religion where they used the name Yahweh, the God of Israel, and blended it with pagan customs and traditions. And God was not pleased with that, and that's a major reason that he sent them into captivity. They forsook God. They preferred to worship idols and to follow laws and customs that were not good and that were not in keeping with the word of God. And during that time, God sent many prophets to them to warn them of what would happen to them if they continued down that path, but they would not listen. And so they eventually were destroyed as a people, that is, their nation. 
as an entity was destroyed, they continued, of course, many of them were killed actually, but others continued to live and reproduce, and you know the history probably what happened after that. That was a precursor of what's in store for Israel in our age whenever God decides to intervene and execute his judgment if we don't repent as a people. God has a message also for the church of the Laodiceans. And we might ask ourselves, could that mean us, at least in part? Revelation 3 and verse 14 Revelation 3, beginning with verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. An another way of saying cold or hot is you're neither cold nor hot is you're apathetic. You're lukewarm, as it says. Because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And that could apply both physically as well as spiritually. I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. God doesn't rebuke us because he hates us. He rebukes us because he loves us. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. In other words, if someone is willing to hear God's word and respond to it in a positive way, God's more than ready to, to interact with that individual in a positive way. It goes on to say, To him who overcomes, I will sit, grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So lethargy, apathy, especially in spiritual matters, lethargy and apathy and studying the Bible and praying and seeking God characterizes our nation and to a large extent our world and unfortunately, to a large extent, the church of God. If and when any one of us concludes that we're spiritually rich, when we get to thinking we've learned everything we need to know and thinking we've made all the progress we need to make, when we become comfortable with the condition of Satan's world, we stand in mortal danger. So we must take warning. And if we're in that condition, we must stir our, ourselves out of our lethargy and our apathetic state and be zealous for God. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, command to those who are rich in this present age, and again, that includes us, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not 
to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may that, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold, lay hold on eternal life. This tells us what we, a formula for our behavior if we happen to be rich, which we are in certain respects. So let's not let prosperity be our undoing.